Today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 11. Now the last time we saw the overlying theme of how everything that happens in the temporal world has spiritual implications. And today it's really a continuation in many respects because the problem was that many of the Corinthians were not understanding the spiritual points that the Apostle Paul was trying to make. So he does a further job of trying to help them to understand what they need to understand. So we're going to start with verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, that you may well put up with it. So the Apostle Paul is saying to the Corinthians, indulge me a little. I need to make some points clear here. In verse 2, he says, I have a godly jealousy for you. The Apostle Paul had strong feelings of protection and love for the Corinthian believers as a father did in those days for his virgin daughter. Now, society was different in a lot of ways. In those days, fathers had a responsibility. They had a hand in keeping their daughters safe from predators and sexually pure to save for their future husbands. So Paul's looking at this between the believers and Christ. Christ as the future husband, we in a sense as believers are married to Christ as the chaste virgin in a sense. His desire was to keep the Corinthians betrothed to Christ and not to have them defiled with false doctrine and destructive behavior. And that any pastor, elder, bishop, any leader's goal would be the same goal. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians 5, Paul emulated Christ's goal to keep the church spiritually spotless, right? In verse 3, he didn't want the Corinthians corrupted from the simplicity in Christ. Now, let me explain what we're talking about here because we have to go back, get out our history books, and see what was going on at the time in Corinth. You had some false teachers that would come through. You had the Judaizers, which were the guys that said if a Gentile wanted to become a Christian, he had to first become a Jew and follow the law and be circumcised, and then he could become a Christian. It was like this kind of board game idea of how you get to salvation. And of course, that's not true. Once grace came, the law was just a tutor to bring us to that grace, that understanding of grace. The second group of people, and you'll see the underlying theme here, were the Gnostics. And the Gnostics would come through and they'd say, hey, I know you're going to a Bible-believing church, but there's some stuff that you're not getting from God's word. You see, come follow us. We have some deeper, more spiritual things that we want to teach you that most people don't have the opportunity to get. Those were the Gnostics, right? And if you do this and that and follow this, then you will be a super spiritual person. The simplicity gets lost. And it's no different today. There are teachings now that will show you how to become a, a great Christian, a super spiritual Christian. But a lot of these teachings focus on this esoteric knowledge, this high-mindedness. Uh, a lot of the youth are going to seminary now. It's a, it's a big thing, and I'm not against seminary. But it becomes so high-minded that the simplicity of the gospel is lost, and that's a problem. You see, men love to make the message of salvation, which is simple. They love to make it complex 
Because if they do that, then they can have a hand in that salvation, and it gives them a sense of importance, a sense of pride, right? You have to come to the church first before you can get saved. If you were on a desert iron, uh, island and you opened up God's word, if there was no man to lead you, you could not be saved. This is the mentality. Well, let me explain to you the simplicity of the gospel, for those of you that may not know. We have a problem. We're all sinners, okay? And if we don't sin overtly, we sin in our hearts and in our thoughts. So the problem is, how does God have his kids, his children, reconciled to him when he's holy and perfect? You know, are we going to... He doesn't want us to make a mess of his heaven as we've made a mess of this world, okay? It's not going to happen. So there's a, a problem, there's a chasm, there's a gap between us and our creator. So what he's devised was that he would send his only son into the world because for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that's the message of the gospel. Even children can understand that message. It's a very simple message. Well, how does that work, Pastor Joe? It's very simple. Jesus took the sins of the world, past, present, future. Don't ask me how he did it, but he did it. And he bore those sins upon him on that cross. And when he was crucified and he shed his blood, those sins were paid for. So now when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to us because of what Jesus did on the cross, but we have to believe. So all we have to do is believe in Jesus' sacrifice, believe what he did, and we're saved. That's it? Yeah. I mean, I don't have to give money? No. If you want to, you can. I don't have to do good works to get to heaven? No, but you should because you're filled with the Holy Spirit. So you see, it's a very simple message, and then everything emanates from there. Simple message. Even children can understand it. It's so simple that missionaries can go to different tribal, indigenous tribal areas in remote portions of the globe with a simple understanding of language, and they lead them to Christ through the simplicity of the gospel. Easy message to understand. Now, he says there's another Jesus or other Jesuses, other spirits, other gospels, but they're demonic. You see, the cults are doing a very good job in sounding like believers. They're mimicking us. They've learned the terms Christianity, salvation, heaven. But it's very important. If someone comes to knock on your door, ask them to define the terms. And you'll find that the same word that you're both using, you're not in agreement with what they're teaching. As a matter of fact, some will tell you that Jesus was an angel, or Jesus was just a man, or he was just a prophet. And then it gets weirder. Jesus was a lesser God. Jesus was Lucifer's brother, and they both had a plan of salvation, and Jesus won the bid. And Jesus is also the father's stage identity. He leaves heaven as the father and then becomes the son, but there's no father up in heaven. You see? But, you know, he kind of does the shell game where you think he's in two places at once. It's weird, and it gets weirder. That's what's out there. Satan will deceive as he did to Eve. The Bible's clear. How? Well, because he promised her a greater role than the one God gave her. Through his craftiness and his enticing nature, he duped her, right? And then Adam, of course, went along with it. I would just say this. Be careful of being seduced based on your emotions, your feelings, your desires, because they can become idols. There are things in our lives that we hold so dear. Somebody said that um, be careful when you deal with Christians Anything that has to do with their children, their money, and their pet doctrines. Those are the things that they'll hold on so tightly, and it'll become an idol to them. And if you try to, to talk about that, they'll come at you, all right? I've seen situations where there were those who have been in Bible-believing churches, 
and they found the right idol or the right bait to entice them away, and then they're gone. They're off the deep end. People who knew the Bible, who have read the Bible to cover to cover, but all it took was the right bait to get them to go off the deep end. And this is what happened in Corinth. I can picture Paul saying, Oy vey, how could they have done this? How could they have gone so far, you know? So this was an issue in Corinth, and it's an issue today. Verse 5. He says, For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. Did I commit sin in abasing myself that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what was lacking to me, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. So, now again, this was an issue between the Apostle Paul and there were times that he'd be hundreds of miles away, if not a thousand miles away, uh, getting reports from what was going on in Corinth. A lot of the people changed, they repented, they were really following the Lord strong, but there were factions of problems. So you see him dealing with these problems. And there were some Johnny-come-lately itinerant preachers who would come in. They were really looking to get money from the people. And they try to pull them away from Paul's influence. Now, a good rule is to try to ignore attacks. But sometimes, especially in this case, if the messenger could be brought down, then the message would be brought down too. And maybe Corinth would have turned to a church of, of Gnosticism. So it was very important that at times, Paul had to defend the assaults that were being leveled against him. And one of the insults, and he was very good at this, at reiterating the offense and then addressing it. Paul, he's not much to look at. He's not a great orator. He doesn't speak well. This is interesting. The city of Corinth in those days hosted the Isthmian Games, which were like the Olympics. And they were mostly physical contests, as we see the Olympics are. But one of the things that was interesting was they had a contest for oration. They would have speakers come up in the middle of a physical contest, and they, they would come up and they would be erudite. They would orate. They would wow the crowd with their eloquence of speech, and they would be judged on that. And it permeated society, and it permeated the church. And we see that today, don't we? Even look at some of these presidential elections. If the person can speak very well and they're very eloquent, well, then people are drawn to them, and they're considered giving them their vote. That's, that's, a, that's a problem in this country. But Paul's response would be, hey, you know, that might be true. I'm not the best speaker, but don't miss the message that we're bringing. And don't miss the fact that we've practiced what we've preached. He speaks about these eminent apostles. Uh, they would be lifting up these guys who would come through. And Paul's main defense against these guys had to do with money. Which, was a, which is still a perceived problem in the church, if not an outright problem in the way non-believers look at the Christian church. So Paul says a few things here. Number one, I, have, I elevated you Corinthians at my expense. I was abased. I elevated you. Two, whenever I was in need, I never burdened you. And as a matter of fact, when I needed finances, the Macedonians sent it to me while I was ministering among you. And they couldn't dispute this because this is what was going on. And verse nine, he says, I was not a burden. I love to look at, and I never, 
get tired of looking at where these words come from. Uh, when I'm done, I usually go through my Greek-English Bible program and see the different words. The word for burden in the Greek is kata narkao. Take off kata, because that means down or bad. The rest of it is narkao, which is where we get the word narcotics from, or narcolepsy. You see, back then it was used that if you were swimming, an eel would sting you. And whether it was an electric eel or, or some type of sea creature that stung you, it would cause you to become numb, as if you were on narcotics. It would cause you to have a burden to yourself. Part of your body would be deadened. You see what I'm saying? So Paul was saying, listen, I was never a burden on you. But some of these teachers who came through Corinth put the believers into a spiritual stupor. And they were able to take their money that way. They, they mesmerized them. Verse 10. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. So no one was going to stop the Apostle Paul from, from spreading the truth. It had gone on far too long, and he needed to get this out. It was important. Why? Because he didn't love them? Well, in the Greek, the way he asked the question demands an affirmative uh, for an answer. No, I do love you. You see? Paul was going to make sure that the truth of the false teacher's deceptions got out to expose them for what they were. Now, some would say, well, isn't this gossip? Could we be confused this with gossip? No. Gossip is when you whisper to somebody in secret and you say, and you didn't hear that from me. Don't tell anybody, but I'm just telling you. Meanwhile, they're telling 50 other people. What's going on here is he's calling out sin, right? Which is not really done that much. So even today in the church, it's a lot easier to talk about it in private and not actually have to confront someone. So the whole thing about calling out sin is not done that often, and it should be done more often. The Bible says that judgments, the judgment starts in the house of God. So if we have something to say, we should be willing to say it and stand by our words. Obviously, Paul was uncomfortable reminding them what he had done for them, but he had to correct the mistruths. The others came in without sacrifice and tried to win over with charm and friendliness, and often they were disingenuous. And some in Corinth had the what-have-you-done-for-me-lately attitude. Yes, the Apostle Paul led them to Christ. Yes, he birthed the church. But he's gone to Ephesus. What have you done for me lately? And they started listening to these, these Johnny-come-lately preachers that were coming through the church. And it's often good for us to ask ourselves, who's been there for me in the formative years? Who's been there to teach me what I know? Who's been there that if I call, even though I don't see them that often, that they answer? I brought up Pastor Luis Solis last Sunday, a good friend of mine. He's a pastor in Calvary Chapel, Kearney. Uh, but he was one of my earlier mentors when, when neither one of us were pastors. Well, now I'm a pastor, and he's a pastor in Kearney. And we don't get to see each other as, long as, as often as we would like to uh, because of the distance and because we're both busy. But I have to tell you, he hasn't done anything for me lately. But I am loyal to him because of what he's poured into my life years ago. And I think as a society, that loyalty is lost. The more we become a me generation, all we think about is me. Every time I look in the mirror, I only see me. And we forget about others. And it's even in the church. Loyalty needs to come back because that's very important. Now, you know, you don't be loyal to someone when they're in sin. 
But, you know, it, loyalty is important for those who have especially poured into you. And verse 12, there's a paraphrase here. He says to them, in, in, in essence, don't, or let them be like us and don't pay them and see if they stick around. Right? Really put them to the test. Really give them the opportunity to behave as we behave. And let's see how, how far they get. Stop giving them money. Let them come in. Let them self-sacrifice and see where they are. I hear, and I have a problem with some of the health and wealth preachers out there. You know, preaching that God wants you to be rich and, you know, give all your money to the church because God will restore it a thousandfold. But I find that most of those preachings in the church, the only ones getting rich are the preachers. Right? They're getting everybody to empty their wallets so that they can be wealthy and they can live a very high standard of living. So I have a problem with that. And I can see some of that in here. Verse 13. He says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. It's hard for many to accept, and it's very hard for many to accept, that some in ministry that are agreeable, that are attractive, that are good speakers, and that flatter are evil. Ooh, that word, that's a little harsh. Evil, that's, that's a little hard to deal with. I want you to understand something. The best salesman work on our egos, the best salesman. Russ, you need this microphone stand. I can see a man of your charisma and character and your intelligence just by talking to you. You have to have this, take out your wallet, microphone stand, right? I'm working on his ego because then they feel, well, I'm an idiot if I don't buy the microphone stand because he just told me what a wonderful person I was. So the biggest scammers will work on your ego and Satan is the father of those scammers. See, it goes back to society's idea of greatness based on appearance, and it's a trap. Satan is the great deceiver. He appears to be wonderful and traps many with his deception. Most likely when he came to Eve, he didn't say boo and scare her and, and look all grotesque. He came to her, her as a friend, very soft-spoken, very eloquent. Eve, I'm looking out for your best interests. So he says... God's holding you back because, Eve, look at you. You know, you're like the modern woman. God knows in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will be like him. Eve, your greatness is being stifled by God. Just partake of the fruit. See, he's working on her ego. See, Satan is also a fisher of men. Christ is a fisher of men, but Satan is the great deceiver and imitator. He is also a fisher of men, and he knows what bait works for the best of us, for all of us. It, appears, it appeals to our vanity and our appearance-orientedness. Let me prove my point. By a show of hands, I'll, I'll raise my hand. How many here have at least two mirrors in their home? Come on. Everybody. See, I rest my case. <laughs> I mean, you ever, you ever look at, okay, as a church, we have a Facebook page. And it's kind of funny, and it's humorous. If you look on people's Facebook pages about me, photos, 10,000 pictures of me, right? A front shot, a side shot, an angry shot, a pouty shot, a happy shot, a modeling shot, a back shot, a full body shot. That's only seven of them. Where are the rest of them going? You know what I'm saying? Me at the beach, me with my friends, right? You look at it. It's all about me on Facebook. Look at all the pictures of me. I'm wonderful. 
We are an ego-driven society. And the sad thing is, on a serious note, there's a whole genre of appearance Christianity that's specifically aimed at our youth. Teach your kids an example and in word because they're going to be pulled away by these upstart movements that are all about appearance. And that's the way they entice them and draw them in because it's the way society is. It works, right? So, of course, those that emulate Satan's success are going to do the same thing. They're going to feign being ministers of righteousness, maybe attractive, well-spoken, friendly, and can't possibly be a false teacher. A pastor friend of mine told me about a, a movement that sprang up in his area uh, that he ministers, and he said they sent some people over to try to you know, have this thing going on with them. And he said, the girl was a 10 and the guy was a 10. And they both had the look and they dressed a certain way. And it was more like a fashion show than a prayer event. You see what I'm saying? So be careful of that stuff. It's the same old lie, right? Satan says, follow me. You know, I'm going to teach you something. You're the best and the brightest. This is something that you can't live without. God is holding you down. He's not explo exploiting your resources. And no doubt these false, false teachers were saying about Paul, ah, he's so passe. He's an old fogey. He's so BC. We live in AD. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> a few qualities of a false teacher. Number one, they discredit true Christian teachings. Number two, they cause divisions or factions in the church, in the body of Christ. Number three, they're self-serving with little or no sacrifice. They want to maintain their lifestyle and have ministry uh, accommodate their lifestyle. They don't want to make any changes in their lifestyle. Right? Watch that one. Three, subtle variations of biblical truth are taught. Subtle. The cults that teach overtly ridiculous stuff, and they still gain a following, but those are the obvious ones. Subtle, right? What the scripture says is just put little twists on it just to make sure it's a little bit different so they can have others follow them. And five, they teach on the Bible, but it's obvious that they can't live it. They live a double life. And verse 15, Paul says their end will be according to their works. James 3, 1 says, let us not all become teachers, because don't you know we will receive double damnation or a stricter judgment? That's scary to anyone who's teaching false doctrine. Verse 16, I say again, let no one think me a fool, if otherwise at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I will also boast. There's a few terms he uses several times in this chapter. Fool, foolish, boast, boasting, and bear with me. What it comes down to is Paul wanted to have the conversation be on a spiritual plane, not a, not a, a natural plane, right? He wanted to speak in spiritual terms, but the, the Corinthians, many of them were too worldly for that. So he has no choice but to speak on their level for a few moments to get the point across. And we may find that. We actually may find ourselves being shocked that you may think you know a Christian for a long time and uh, you, know, you both speak in the same language, God's word, and there's a disagreement or a problem. And you try to go to scripture and they don't want to hear the scripture. You ever see that? 
wait a minute, what have we been learning all these years in, in God's word? Let's speak according to what God's word says. Now, I don't want to talk about that. I feel like this. You know you're in trouble. So Paul, in essence, had to speak on their level for a few moments. Verse 19. He says, for you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. There's sarcasm there. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. To our shame, I say that we were too weak for that, but in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Paul was like a spiritual father to, for, to the Corinthians, but some of them preferred these uh, new teachers, these hirelings, instead of a true shepherd. The false teachers and itinerant preachers did the following, according to the Apostle Paul. Number one, he brought them into bondage. And that word means literally abject slavery spiritually. He completely enslaved them in, uh, in, in, this, in this system that did not cause them to really understand things on a spiritual plane. Number two, they devoured them. The false teaching was ruining the Corinthians on many fronts. Three, they took from you. They took as much money as they could get from the Corinthians. And four, they strike you on the face. Now, this is weird. Back then, there were some forms of schooling that if you didn't understand the point uh, or for whatever the problem was that you weren't getting the point that the teacher was conveying, they would slap you in the face. Who would want to go to that school? <laughs> That's weird. But, but, you know, I just want to digress for a minute. There is a behavioral issue with some that the person who treats them well, they dump on. You ever see this? And the ones that treat them really bad, they follow. Uh, so a lot of you are shaking your heads. You've seen this. Let me just go through this for a few minutes. Um, it, it's wrong no matter how you look at it. But number one, the person may know, or they do know, that you're a stable force in their life, and they may dump on you because you're the only one that won't leave. And that's good for those of you who have rebellious teens. Sometimes they'll act out and they'll dump on you, and you've done so much for them. It's because everyone else is in chaos around them, and you're the only stable force in their life. So keep that in mind. Number two, it's kind of like a Stockholm Syndrome kind of thing. They'll stay friends or on the good side with evil persons because they don't want to be on their bad side. Everybody wants to be friends with the gossip because the minute they do something they don't like, they know that the barrel's coming their way. All right? So it's like a kind of a, you want to stay in that protection so it doesn't come your way. Number three, the person believes that they're worth little so they stay with the abuser. You see this a lot in the domestic violence situations. They don't think that they can do better or they think that they deserve the abuse. So human beings are odd. Even as Christians, sometimes we get caught up in these, these, these things that are really not helpful and they're not edifying and it's really a form of dysfunction. At verse 21, the Apostle Paul says, you calling us weak, you're right. If it means that we don't abuse you and slap you in the face and take your money, you can call us weak, we'll take that. Right? So you see what he's saying there. Verse 22, Paul says, he goes into this um, dissertation. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measures. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily? My deep concern for all the churches. Believe it or not, it's not common, but there, there is a teaching that when Paul says he was stoned, they think he was smoking marijuana. Isn't that ridiculous? For those of you who don't know, there was a form of punishment where they would put a person in a pit and take stones and bricks and hurl it at them until they died. Usually they try to hit him in the head. So that's what he's speaking about. Okay. Paul had an impressive worldly resume, but that's not quali what qualified him to be an apostle. He often fell back on his sufferings and his failures to show that it was Christ who made him successful and gave him authority. Now, after reading that, let's meditate on that. How many of us have been shipwrecked, um, you know, beaten to the point where you were almost dead, um, hungry, really hungry, really cold, uh, really unclothed, things of that nature, right? How many? I know it wasn't me. I've, I've had some sorrow in my life, but nothing to compare to this. But we can see a few things here. What have we really suffered for Christ as American Christians? What do we really have to complain about? A good dose of a, of a, a cure for that complaining is to go out back. I think we have a few copies of Voice of the Martyrs. And that talks about these pictures, graphic pictures of believers all around the world that have been literally things to this nature only because they believe in Jesus and the government is against Christianity. And they still continue to meet and they still continue to worship and believe in Jesus and they still continue to get beat up. Scarred, burns, amputations, um, just stuff that you, it would make you cringe. Right? It, it's just unbelievable. It shows us really that all of us, including myself, we could give a little bit more of an effort. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son for God. Many in our society wouldn't even sacrifice their pet hamster, you know? I mean, what does that say about us as a society? Can we get up a little earlier? Can we serve God? Can we go to more venues where his word is being taught, prayer meetings? Can we change some of our bad behavior? Can we make a little bit more of a commitment? Back in the day, when TV was big, before the advent of computers, the preachers would say, kill your televisions, you know, stop watching so much TV, read God's word. Well, now it's, we live in the age of the computer, and the computer can do all kinds of things. You can see videos, you can send messages to each other, There's so much stuff that can be done on the computer. Some are addicted to the computer, and it may not even be pornography. It may just be an addiction to the computer. Some are addicted to, and I'm going to pick on Facebook today, they'll play all those farm games, Yoville and Farmville and Mafia Wars. I know, you're laughing. Because you know it, right? Somebody posts something about scripture and you don't even comment on it, but something about a fleshy TV show. Oh, I love that. That's great. I love that sarcasm. My question is, I'm not against recreation, but do we devote the same amount of time? Take a little egg timer when you get on the computer. All day, take an egg timer. Dude, keep, you know, dude. See how, many, how long it takes you the day to play with the computer. Do we take that same amount of time and put it into God's word? 
Listen, I'm not here to be anybody's friend. I'm here to scratch you where you itch. I'm here to tell you the truth, you know? And if it makes me unpopular, then so be it. But there's too many Christians who could not defend their faith. They could not defend their, defend their way out of a paper bag. They don't know the scripture. We have a whole generation of Christians that are more in it for the social thing. And the problem is, where are the parents? You know, what are we teaching our kids? Let me tell you something. This message convicts me also. Because my son does the things that he wants, and I'll tell him, stop. Go read your Bible and tell me what it says before you go continue what you're doing. And you know what? He, he likes it. It's something that he, he enjoys. We do it together. You know, your kids will just do things with you just to be with you. We don't have to buy them the best toys. We don't have to work three jobs to buy them everything that everybody else has in the neighborhood. They just want us to spend time with them. Where did we get off track to thinking they needed all this expensive stuff and we're not around for our kids? Right? Something for us parents to think about. Again, it's just me. But whether it's an atheist or a cultist, aren't you concerned that your 19-year-old may be drawn away to some cult because they don't know their word and somebody puts on a convincing argument and they have no idea what, what it means to be a believer? They don't know why Jesus is God? They don't know where it says it in the Bible? You know? So it's just some things to think about. And some of us adults can't defend our faith because we don't know that much about the scripture. Let's go back to Paul, his credentials. It included suffering and self-sacrifice. God showed his approval of Paul. He didn't need it from men. He didn't have to prove anything to men. And even when he spoke about his credentials, he said, you know what, I, not that I want to go down this road and bear with me for a little while. It's a little foolish, but... You know, don't you think I have those credentials too? But that's not what makes me an apostle. It's the fact that I follow Christ and I'm willing to suffer anything to further his goal. And I'm just going to do what Christ has called me to do. Verse 26, he says, Perils of my own countrymen and perils among false brethren. In other words, a spurious brother or a pretended associate. We expect assaults from the world and the devil. But it's really painful, isn't it, when it comes from the inside? Isn't it painful when we get it from a family member or someone we considered a friend? I can tell you, every pastor I know who is dedicated to serving the Lord has had someone close to him, Judas him, so to speak, right? For no, no apparent reason. So this is what devil, the devil will use anything against you to get you to stop preaching, to get you to stop being an influence for the Lord. Verse 28, he says, Besides all the other things, all the things he mentioned, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Daily was his concern for all the churches. In other words, care or distraction. While the Apostle Paul was suffering, he was always distracted by how the other believers were doing. While he's getting pelted with the rocks, while they're tying him to the post and they're whipping him on his back or beating him with rods. He was like, gee, I wonder how the Corinthians are doing. I mean, he loved them so much. And that's a quality. You know, for those who want to be leaders, Jesus said the Gentiles lorded over each other. A lot, of, a lot of people want to be leaders so they can have power. But Jesus said, be a servant leader. Love them. Serve them. Napoleon, I heard this quote, and I had to look it up myself because I found that to be true. Napoleon Bonaparte, right? He, he marveled that so many men had control over the masses through fear and intimidation. But his marvel was that Jesus Christ won many more millions to his side out of love and self-sacrifice. Napoleon couldn't figure it out, but it's the truth, right? Verse 29, last few verses. Who is weak, and I am not weak? 
Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity or my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor, under Aratus the king, was guarding the, the city of uh, Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to apprehend me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. This doesn't come out so well with the direct translation, but verse 29, Paul's basically saying, if you hurt, I hurt. If somebody causes you to stumble, I get angry. It bothers me. And you can ask my wife, I got to tell you, that's one thing if you really want to get my blood pressure going, is for someone to come in and start teaching false doctrine, is for someone to come in and take advantage of somebody in the church. I get hot, you know? That is one way that you can definitely press my buttons. Uh, but mostly I'm pretty docile and, and mild. In verse 30, who's laughing at that one? <laughs> in verse 30, he says, I will boast in the things which show my weakness. Paul was only as, as successful as he was because he was totally dependent on the Lord. And this encompasses the last few verses about letting him through on the bas uh, basket. When we covered the book of Acts in Acts chapter 9, we saw this in more detail. There was an assassination plot on the apostle Paul's life, and he escaped the city by being uh, let down the city wall on the other side uh, through a basket. But in closing, what can we take away from this? I mean, where's the, what's the central theme here? What can we learn from the apostle Paul? Number one, just keep focusing on God and the plan he has for your life. It's like the horses. They put those blinders on them when they're going through the city. Why? So they don't see all the chaos in the city and doesn't freak out the horses, right? In order for the horse to just do his thing and, and pull the carriage through the city, he's got those blinders on. And sometimes we have to do that and just focus on the Lord and not let all these things get us distracted. Let's take this a little bit more personally. Let's bring it back to home here. What about we're getting a new church building? What does that mean? What changes? Should anything change? If anything, we should see that new church, that building as headquarters. And from headquarters, we get dispatched to calls. We get dispatched to what God has us do, to the poor people, to those who are addicted to alcohol. There's bars in that town, right? To those who are having broken marriages and, and, and families that are broken. So that's what that building should represent to us. Yes, I, it's exciting. There's new carpets and they're remodeling it. It's just beautiful inside. But that should not be our focus. The focus should be on, and I believe that God has given it to us not so that we could glory in the building. He's given it to us because we're already doing his work with the homeless ministry and the prison ministry and all the things that are going on here and the teen ministry and all that stuff. That's got to continue. Right? And that's got to even maybe even multiply. More people may, may get ri risen up to do these things. I've had a few ideas of, uh, actually a few of us had some really good ideas, and we welcome yours too. Um, you know, I, I talked about the laundromat ministry, where you, you kind of go to the laundromat with a, bu a bucket of quarters, but don't make it obvious, you don't want to get robbed. Um, so you go to the laundromat, and you bring some Bibles and tracts, and there's a lot of people that speak Spanish, right? and uh, bring some materials for them. They're a captive audience. Give them, give them the quarters. So they kind of have to take the quarters. They kind of have to listen to you. So they're a captive audience. That works. Um, no, all in good faith, right? All in good fun. You just want to love people and just show them the way of salvation. Or 
Another thing, Boaz's field. Um, they, they used to have a garden there. We want to, you know, build, uh, plant a huge garden, get the community involved to, you know, putting plants in and stuff and, and, and growing fresh vegetables. So those who can't afford fresh vegetables can come to the church and partake of the, of the garden, Boaz's field, right from the book of Ruth. So these are, and, and I'm sure many of you have some really great ideas that we could, uh, that we could use. And that's what we're supposed to do. Stay focused not get distracted, and continue to grow in God's word. Let's pray.